0: Bible Fellowship Assembly, Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and I have the privilege of continuing our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 28. Let's begin. Good morning, and thank you. Before we get into our study this morning, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your, the precious gift of your word we ask the lord that you would help us to think your thoughts after you that your holy spirit would teach us and direct us that uh, we might learn to apply your word and to rejoice in all that you have done for us in jesus And we give you our praise and our thanks in his precious name amen Back in the good old days, say before mid-March of this year, had you ever traveled to a foreign country? If you did, I'm sure you were in a heightened state of awareness while you were there, because you were not quite sure of the laws and the customs of this other country. Depending on where you went, you might have encountered a language you don't speak, laws and customs. And social customs that are quite different, even strange compared with the norm in northern Ontario. And if you didn't speak the language, you faced a serious problem when you ventured out of the hotel. How do you get directions? Or even purchase something to eat? God has a parallel problem with us. There are so many things he wants us to know and to learn and to understand but we just don't speak the language of heaven. Worse than that, neither English nor French, nor Koine Greek, nor even Biblical Hebrew have adequate ways of conveying these things. So God, in his patient grace, has given us as much as it is possible for mortals to grasp using many symbols and allusions and poetic turns of phrase and stories. And occasionally, he even uses plain, direct speech. As we open this book, the the Letter to the Hebrews, together, we find ourselves immersed in a very different culture. Most of us are Gentiles, like me. The idea of a tabernacle and animal sacrifice and certain rituals that are required to obtain anything like forgiveness, that whole thought pattern is foreign to us. Even if we're students of the Old Testament, we simply do not think in Hebrew and we are unfamiliar with the Hebrew culture. Most of us have not even been to Israel and for sure, None of us have crossed the Red Sea the way Moses and his people did, nor have we spent 40 years in the Judean wilderness. And I am sure that this strangeness is also the case for most modern Western Jews, although likely to a lesser degree. When we're faced with the strangeness of a passage like the one before us this morning, we have a few choices. We could simply dismiss it as having no relevance for our lives today, and just put our energies into more contemporary things. Or we could say that the truths have the truths that really matter in life are not historical but timeless truths that are above history, truths that are expressed in some form in every um, culture and religion. So we can choose to look for those timeless truths in the strange days of priests and animal sacrifice and ritual, hoping to find some enrichment for our lives. Or alternately, we could acknowledge that God governs all of history and progressively reveals himself through the ways he guides his people from one period to the next. In this viewpoint, we see that the old, strange, and foreign ways of priesthood and tabernacle are not irrelevant, but serve to shed light on what God is doing in the present. Yes, there are eternal truths that we can learn from the past, but no, that is not all that God is doing or has done. We need to become part of what God is doing in history and in to, and today, if we would have hope for eternity. This third option is the one we'll pursue today because God is still at work. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, or in some translations, the Holy of Holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Even though the scene is foreign, it is in some ways, vaguely familiar to those of us who have more than a nodding acquaintance with the Exodus story. And we could spend several weeks looking at the structure of the tabernacle and its furnishings and the rituals that the priesthood and people observed. But since this is not a structure or set of rituals any of us are likely to encounter, I'm thankful that the author indicated of these things we cannot now speak in detail or we would be here for a long time. Suffice it to say that some scholars find in many of the details of the tabernacle, its furnishings and its priesthood, frequent illustrations and representations of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that would be a rewarding study. But one item is mentioned. Verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic of the present age. Then he indicates that these things were imposed until the time of Reformation. Under the Old Covenant, we Gentiles could only get so close. If you were a Jewish woman, you could get a little closer. A Jewish man could get a little closer still. But only the priesthood, only some of the descendants of Levi, could actually enter the tabernacle. And only the high priest could enter the holiest place, and that only once in the year. Effectively, the way to the revealed presence of God above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat, the way to the presence of God was restricted. For all but one man, it was completely barred, And even he could only approach God in a specified manner and only for a brief period and only once in the year. One question that might be raised is, when did the present age give way to the time of Reformation? But that is the whole point of this letter. That the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world is the end of the old way. The ending of the present age. We are now standing in the time of reformation and we now serve under a new high priest in the holy temple where his blood replaces the blood of animals and where the food and the old food and drink rituals are replaced with communion in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. A side note here. Matthew records that the curtain separating the holy from the most holy, that heavy ornate curtain, was torn from top to bottom when the Lord Jesus died on the cross. Some would observe that that tearing from top to bottom indicates God's eagerness to engage in fellowship and a loving family relationship with those who are his. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In the old period of history, under the old covenant, The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, taking the blood of animals because the blood stood for the death of the animal. That death was in the place of the death of the priest and the people. God counted the blood of the animals as sufficient for the cleansing the flesh, cleansing the ceremonial uncleanness. But what about the conscience of priests and people? Under the old system of worship, there was no rite or ritual that could address that problem. And in our modern age, with space travel, smartphones, heart transplant, instant gratification of nearly every human desire, in our modern age, we are no nearer a solution to the defiled conscience. John Piper put it this way. We can cut ourselves, or throw our children into the sacred river, or give a million dollars to the United Way, or serve in a soup kitchen at Thanksgiving, or any of a hundred forms of penitence and self-injury, and the result will be the same. The stain remains and death terrifies. We are defiled. By attitudes like pride and self-pity and bitterness and lust and envy and jealousy and covetousness and apathy and fear. And Jesus told us that it is what comes out of us that defiles us. But Jesus has the only perfect solution. As the perfect high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He has offered the perfect sacrifice, not in some earthly tabernacle or temple, but in heaven itself. And the contrast here is stark. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice that the whole Trinity is involved in our cleansing. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. Therefore he, that is the Lord Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Following the Holy Spirit, our author has chosen a play on words, or rather, He has chosen to use different senses of the same word to convey an important truth. The word translated covenant in verse 15 is the same word that is translated will in verses 16 and 17. We have something of the same double meaning in English, where the document that indicates how I want my earthly possessions to be distributed after my death is called A last will and testament. An important part of my will is the assignment of an executor, the person who is charged with the responsibility to see that my wishes are carried out. What is underlined in this section is that no will is ever put into force until the person who made it has died. The basis of this new covenant is the death of the Lord Jesus. His death released our inheritance. And now as the risen Lord, and our high priest, as the mediator or the executor of the will of God, he sees to it that we receive what has been promised. There's another element in this analogy of a will. heirs have nothing to say about who gets what, although sometimes that is challenged in the courts. The inheritance is not something to be negotiated, but comes unilaterally from the one who made the will. And this new covenant was drawn up by God without consulting the heirs or anyone else. It is the sovereign expression of God's love and purpose not a negotiated agreement as assigned heirs we have received an eternal inheritance and that inheritance includes the privilege of being adopted into god's family of having our sin eradicated and of having continuous eternal fellowship with god hebrews 9 and verse 18 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The new covenant in which we stand has an unbroken lineage with the old covenant. The saying attributed to Augustine goes, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed the old testament and the new testament are intimately connected now some 21st century folk object to the frequent references to blood and find the subject revolting they say blood is something you wash off not something you wash in and i knew one man who disdainfully referred to it as butcher shop theology But from the beginning of the Old Covenant, the Hebrews were told in Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And we have an analogy of this within our own bodies. Our amazing blood system Continuously carries off the body's toxins to the kidneys and from there to waste. Without this cleansing work, we would quickly die. So here Hebrews refers to the cleansing work and the eternal inheritance that we enjoy by virtue of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus that he presents on our behalf in that heavenly court. The key is the statement in the last half of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus, because he chose to carry our sin on the cross, because he shed his blood there, because he now and forever presents that blood as the sufficient sacrifice, we can now, today, enjoy forgiveness for all our sins past, present, and future. It's all done. Hebrews 9 and verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, Jesus, the better high priest of the better covenant that is enacted on the basis of better promises, Jesus has done it all. Why was it necessary for the heavenly things themselves to be purified? Well, some have suggested that heaven needed to be cleansed because Satan had been there. But a more likely reason for heaven's cleansing is because we will be there. As it says in in Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The heavenly things that needed to be purified are in fact our hearts, our lives. As Hebrews 3 and verse 6 indicates, we are his house. Paul picked up the same idea in his first letter to Corinth. In chapter 3, in verse 16, he said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. A little later in the same letter, he said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Peter also referenced the same idea in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be granted access to heaven when we die, to be with God and all the saints, and to gaze on our risen Lord Jesus in his glory. But our God is interested in more than that. He wants to live in us and with us, both as individuals and as a body, as an assembly of God's people. So it's no wonder that the heavenly things themselves need to be purified if god is going to live with in and among us think of the honor that we sinful sin prone human beings that we should be referred to as heavenly things how can that be well the scriptures don't take it for granted that we should find a welcome in the father's house God is holy and pure and righteous and just. He hates sin and he lives in absolute perfection. Yet the whole story of the Bible from end to end is the story of a redeeming, loving, gracious God who yearns for fellowship with us. The story of a good shepherd who comes in search of the lost sheep. And Jesus did just that. In Hebrews 9 and verse 26 we find that he did his marvelous work. He made his sacrifice once and once only. This sacrifice was so great that it does not need to be repeated ever. Not for all the redeemed of the past, nor for all the redeemed of the future. Jesus appeared at the end of the ages. His death was not One event in a line of similar historical events. His death was the climax of history. It is the decisive end to history. The consummation of history. Jesus sacrificed himself and not another person. This was the sacrifice of the most valuable person in all the universe. If you ever doubt that you could be made clean before God, ask yourself, which is greater? The evil of your sinfulness and defilement or the value of the blood of the Son of God? And then be careful how you answer, lest you blaspheme. And Jesus sacrificed himself to put away sin. The glory of the Lord Jesus is to be seen in this, that while he has dealt with the problem of sin completely, once and for all, the guilt of your sin and mine is now canceled, nullified, covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Just as it is implanted for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a sort of parallelism here. All human beings, including Jesus of Nazareth, all have an appointment with death. Now that's not the kind of appointment that any of us like to have, or even like to admit that we have. But we had no say in it. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sin. And after death, we will face God's judgment. It is, or at least it should be, a terrifying prospect that we might be met after death with a holy and angry and omnipotent God who will hold us accountable for whether we trusted him and worshipped him and served him by the power of the Holy Spirit. But because of Jesus, because of his shed blood, because I trust him to have had me in mind when he died on the cross, There is no sin on my account. Can you say the same about your condition? Jesus' death is of a different sort than mine or yours. He died to deal with the sins of humanity. Yes, he died. And yes, he faced God's righteous judgment. But because he always did the things that pleased the Father, because he is sinless, he was able to present his blood as a perfect sacrifice, sufficient and more than sufficient for my sin and for yours. And the glorious promise is that he will come again, but he is not coming this second time to deal with sin. For those of us who are in Christ, This event will not be a new experience of salvation, but merely the continued and glorious outworking of all we know right now. But for those who have scorned and ignored the salvation that is offered by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, it will prove to be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because instead of salvation, there will only be condemnation. Given all that Jesus has done for you, given all the work that has been completed, given that Jesus continuously intercedes for you, offering his own blood as the sufficient sacrifice to cover your sin, what will be your response to him? There is salvation and glory offered today in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately. We simply do not know if any of us will have a tomorrow. Paul put it this way in his letter to Corinth. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So I urge you, do not put it off. There is no other solution but the sacrifice of Jesus made on your behalf. Trust him. Come to him. That you may enjoy fellowship with the living God today and through all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We bless you for the sacrifice that was made that is sufficient to cover, to atone for all our sin. Thank you, Father, that you make no distinction, that all of us have sinned. All of us deserve death. But you have made a way for all of us to come to you. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the blood that our Lord Jesus shed in our place. That because of that, we can come to you now and be forgiven. Father, we thank you for that incredible mercy, for that gift of grace, for that love that you have prepared and provided for all who trust you. Lord, for those who Perhaps today have been wondering whether it's possible for even them to come. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, provide the assurance that they may come, that they may know this intimate fellowship with you because of the blood that our Lord Jesus shed.